Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. Uh, So, Lord, that is our prayer this morning. Can, uh, through your word, can you come flood our minds and fill our hearts to be able to receive every good thing that you have set before us? Lord, I pray for whatever word you want to bring to people this morning. May I get out of the way and may you simply just use the words in this time to remind people your goodness, your existence, your presence. In your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you may want to turn to our text that was just read in Matthew uh, chapter 28. Matthew 28, uh, very back of Matthew. Once upon a time, there was a world where people believed in God with little hesitancy. Even in a world that was marked with natural disasters and great day-to-day hardships and immeasurable sufferings that many of us do not even face today, the world was filled with people who every morning would get up, fold their hands, and pray to a God who not only existed, but they believed was actually engaged with the world. And when these people actually discussed God, the questions were never, does God exist? The questions were, how does this God exist in the world? What is this God like in the world? In other words, once upon a time, the world was enchanted with the presence of God. And at least for the foreseeable future, our part of the world in the West is leaving that world. There's no moving from that world. That world is coming even in Round Rock, Texas, in all the towns and cities around it. Some people will say that what this world is moving into is what some people would call a secular society, which just basically means that the world no longer assumes the existence of God. The world no longer walks around believing that there is a designer, one who helps sustain our existence and is working in the world. That we're moving into a world where uh, to no longer mess with the outdated or archaic things of God in society is seen as respectable, open-minded, and for some in society would actually say is healthier to forget those times. In our part of the world where our highest priority is individual thinking, what you think and what you think is healthiest and acceptable for you. Where the highest priority is each person's own thinking of what's acceptable or helpful. 
it will be trendy to always be hesitant and detached, to never be committal, to always be considering, but never to drive a stake in the ground. Maybe one way to think about this is our world is becoming like a really famous poem by the uh, words of Taylor Malley, who drafted this poem that's called Like Whatever, you know? If you've never uh, heard this poem, I have a clip for you today to actually hear these words. In case you hadn't realized, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> or believe strongly in what you're, like, saying. Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows and you know what I'm saying? I've been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences, even when those sentences aren't, like, questions. <laughs> Declarative sentences, so-called because they used to, like, you know, declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things that are, like, totally, you know, not. <laughs> They've been infected by this tragically cool and totally hip interrogative tone. As if I'm saying, don't think I'm a nerd just because I've, like, noticed this, okay? I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions. I'm just, like, inviting you to join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. What in the world do you do when there's no longer any certainty that exists in the world? Is it progressive and is it meaningful to live in a world where we're always investigating and questioning and opening our minds, but never actually committing, never actually driving a stake in the ground? Some people would say that this is progress. But even people who may not even believe in God can look at the signs of the world and maybe even say a world that is all marked by uncertainty is not a world that maybe you or I want to live in, that maybe it's not as admirable or progressive as we like. David Brooks, who is a writer of the New York Times uh, columnist, he uh, posted an article uh, a couple years back where he was talking about how uh, communities of faith are slowly moving into this place of fragility and insecurity. When it comes to faith, it's always this ambiguous pursuit, but never this declaring. And one of the things that he notices in this article that I'm going to read to us at length is he actually says that maybe this isn't the most brave or noble thing. Here's how David Brooks writes it. We're all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is when we haven't thrown ourselves with abandon into a social role, when we haven't committed ourselves to certain people, when we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. Emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it only has a philosophical answer. People are really tough only after they have taken a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. And this is the quote. We live in an age when it's considered sophisticated to be disenchanted. But the people who are enchanted are the real tough 
cookies in the world. Maybe to say it more succinctly, there was a time in the world where it was risky and it was a stretch to doubt in the existence of God. But in a world you are entering into or maybe already swimming in, in cynicism, skepticism, and doubt, the bravest and most courageous thing you can do in modern society is actually have faith, be confident and declare in a God who designed you, who provides for you, and actually guides you in your existence. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series that we've called Doubt It, where we've kind of been discussing the sources of current and common wrestlings that people will engage as they engage God. And in this final week, I've talked about some of the sources in previous weeks. In this final week, I simply want to deliver just a message that talks about how do we move forward? When we identify the questions, when we wrestle with the doubts, how do we bravely continue, even if we feel like we don't have all the answers? Or maybe there's more answers for us to explore. In other words, how do we let doubt be a doorway, not a wall? How do we move forward when it feels like there's questions that may hang over us? And this is where Matthew 28 may become helpful to us. In the portion of the Bible in which we refer to as Matthew, we are given these moments with the disciples after Jesus is resurrected where the disciples do not know how to move forward in their faith. And as we've seen with Matthew's gospel and any other gospel, you have these disciples who walk around with Jesus, who as they are traveling around, do not have everything figured out about the one they call Lord. As a matter of fact, as you walk through the gospels, there are plenty of instances where the disciples are either asking really poor questions, that they are revealing their misperceptions that they have about Jesus, or simply they've got wrong ideas about what he's teaching. And in the Gospel of Matthew, when you move towards chapter 28, you see that the disciples' ideas and views and perception of God are all crucified. Everything that they thought of what Jesus claimed, disappeared and in Jesus resurrection when he reappears in Matthew 28 you find a group of disciples who are trying to come to grips with what does this mean that Jesus died and now that he's resurrected in front of us in Matthew 28 Jesus takes in light of all they've learned and all their disappointments and all their questions and he simply says this final word to them. Christians have called this the Great Commission. And what Jesus does and what Jesus says, I think we can draw kind of three ways for not only the disciples moving forward, but also for us in moving forward, even in our questions and in our doubts. The first one I think we can draw from is actually from the first verse in uh, verse 16. And 17. Now the disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him. But they doubted, or some translations would say, or some of them doubted. Here would be the first thing that I would want us to draw this morning. To move forward means that moving forward means that we move forward with the disciples who are also moving forward. At the very end of Matthew 28, it does not start with a very stirring word. Matthew actually starts in a very sobering term because he actually refers to there's 11 of them, not 12 of them, which is a really sobering reminder to us, especially for those of us who traveled the journey of faith for a long time, that not everyone who starts with us always keeps going. One of the disciples, Judas, who actually betrays Jesus, ends up cutting himself off from the rest of the group. And he isn't there to share in the experience of the risen Lord. Anytime we find ourselves in a place of disappointment or disillusion or discouragement with God, one of the most natural things for us to reach for is isolation. To move away from the people who remind us of the things that either hurt us or confuse us or frustrate us. In many ways, in being in church for a while, I completely understand this. It's hard when you doubt the goodness of God to be in a room full of people that are smiling and worshiping that God. Maybe for some of us to isolate ourselves or move away from the people of God may feel like a great way to cope. But it's never been the cure for moving forward in our faith. Often in our patterns of isolation, we tend to tell ourselves nobody understands what I'm thinking or feeling. So therefore, I need to move myself out from the people of God. But the domino that kind of happens for us, even if we move ourselves away from church or the people who know us the best, is that at some point our instinct is we want other people who understand or relate with what we're doing or what we're thinking. You know, over the years, I've had friends who have been followers of Jesus who have stepped away, and it breaks my heart because I watch them as they slowly move to things like book clubs and, you know, Facebook chat groups, uh, new communities where they feel like there's other people who understand and relate. And the thing about that is, is that may comfort us for a time, but very seldom when participating in those groups do they actually usher us to healing. Because many times they're centered around not what they're for, but what they're against. And usually it's just lived perception. We assume that the community of God won't receive us even in the midst of our doubts. I guess the simple way I'm trying to just say this is, is that... Um, very few followers of Jesus who walk away from Jesus communities have I seen walk closer with Jesus afterwards. No matter the difficulty, there is something mysterious about the people of God gathering together and witnessing and testifying to the risen Lord. There's something powerful. 
I, uh, I grew up in a church that was uh, not very far from here uh, in a town most of you have never heard of. Uh, and you've never heard me tell stories about it whatsoever. But um, in that church that I grew up in, uh, there was a man by the name Ron. And uh, I didn't like Ron. Uh, Ron uh, loved hanging out with teenagers. He would always volunteer to help in the youth group. And uh, no one told Ron in our youth group that uh, we weren't that crazy about Ron being around our youth group. And uh, I think the thing with Ron that just kind of rubbed us all the wrong way was um, Ron was always ranting. You know, he was always, he was always kind of railing on whatever the thing in society was lately. Um, you know, he's kind of older. He wasn't always relatable. Kind of always smelled like potatoes. And I mean, it just wasn't enjoyable. And uh, Ron would want to hang out with the teens all the time. And I remember there was a, there was a time where Ron said, I want to put on a mystery event for the youth group. And I guess for some reason, the church was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> and all the parents forced us to go to this mystery event with Ron. And we should have known. We should have known this was going to be problematic. Because Ron, Ron had two, two things. He was like, all right, show up this event. Two things you need to do. One, it's at 8.30 on a Saturday morning. I'm 12 years old. You might as well tell me I'm signing up for the military, okay? You got to show up at 8.30 in the morning. And second of all, you've got to wear extremely bright colors, which most of us were kind of hopeful that this was going to be a flash mob thing or something fun. We show up at 8.30 on a Saturday, and Ron has plans for us for the next four and a half hours to slowly pick up trash on the side of the road of I-35. Because he said it would be good for us. And I remember the whole time, he was so joyful, he was picking up the trash. He was like, aren't you guys glad you didn't miss this? And all of us under our breaths would be like, we wouldn't miss you. And as much as I remember resenting Ron, as much as Ron taught me some things, even about the Christian faith, that I've had to unlearn even if Ron and I sat in a room today, I would sit across from Ron and be like, some of your views are not healthy, and I'm not sure they're part of the kingdom. I remember Ron, when we had cleaned up that side of the road, sat down and said, I want you to look at this road. And I want you to look at all the trash that people just throw on the road all the time, and they don't even know it. And he goes, you know, when I spend hours picking up this trash, you know what I think of? And I remember thinking, I don't care what you think of. Ron goes, I think about how that's kind of like what Jesus does for all of us. And that his promise to us is that he's coming back. And he's going to quite literally do this for us in the world. And I remember thinking at that moment, okay, I've lived a lot of years and I've had a lot of great teachers who have taught me a lot of things about theology, systematic thinking, philosophy, but Jesus started to grab my heart that day by that man simply making me pick up trash for four hours and gave me an image, even the most simplest image, of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. 
I would actually come back to you today and say that's one of the soundest examples of the work of God in Jesus. There will be times in your life with Jesus where you rub shoulders with people that you're like, why do I do this with them? And you do it with them, not because that person is Jesus, but that is the person who Jesus chooses to come to us through. It's the power of the church. God's spirit brings us back to the mountain through the people of God. Did you notice that when they go back to the mountain in Matthew, the mountain is the place where all the events with Jesus that have been meaningful, significant, happen. Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration, the Commission. The people of God help bring us there. Our instinct and our doubts and questions may be to move away from the church. But Jesus actually comes to us through the church. Maybe even through Ron. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you're in this church and you don't have a Ron yet, you need to find your Ron. Move forward with Ron. The second thing, uh, same thing in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, or translations say, but they doubted. Here would be the second thing I would encourage for us to move forward. Moving forward looks like move forward by giving Jesus authority in our lives. It's interesting in the great commission of Jesus, when Matthew describes the state of the disciples, he actually describes that they doubted, or some of them doubted. That word for doubt that we translate in the English language, that original connotation would actually be hesitancy. And you notice that Matthew doesn't take any time to wax eloquently about what hesitations they have about the risen Lord. He doesn't take time to unpack them, nor does Jesus refuse to come to them because they have some doubts that aren't settled. You know, in our views of faith, we may think that faith means having airtight mental certainty. But in Matthew 28, it appears that relationship with Jesus isn't mental assent, but it's relational trust. That Jesus declares all power and all authority has been given to me through what I have gone through. So therefore, trust the words I'm giving you and live by them. You know, we get hesitant around the words like authority. Mainly because we've experienced people who either abuse it or misuse it. And I think one of the things we mean when we say we give Jesus the authority to speak over our lives is we're basically saying, hey, we believe Christians say that Jesus and his teachings are trustworthy. That we believe that Jesus has our best interests at heart. If you were to read the Gospel of Matthew all the way through, you would know that this is not the first time that power and authority is talked about with Jesus. As a matter of fact, in what's known as the temptation stories in Matthew 4, you actually find that Satan, the accuser, the evil one, actually offers Jesus power and authority if he'll simply bow down and worship 
him. And one of the most beautiful things about Jesus, which is why he deserves authority over your life, is Jesus does not accept a crown without first taking on a crown of thorns. In other words, Jesus does not operate for his benefit, but for all of humanity's benefit. He doesn't go around pain, suffering, and death for authority. Jesus doesn't go around it. He actually goes through it, not for himself, but because of his great love for you and I. Jesus doesn't do it because he just has to do it. Jesus does it for humanity, for us, for you and I. And the reason that Jesus should be the authority over every human and every life is because Jesus actually conquers what every human life faces. Death. And he actually defeats death. So therefore, if this man can predict his death, rise in three days and has conquered death, you can trust him with your life, even if you're not sure about all the things that you think. We trust him, and when we trust him, we do what he wants for us, even when we're not feeling like doing what we want with his life. This is what we would call freedom. Now, in society, freedom we often define as, I do whatever I want to do with my life. And in the Christian faith, in relationship with Jesus, that's not actually the framing of freedom. Freedom in the Christian faith is actually saying to Jesus, I am going to limit myself. I'm going to work within what you've described as the good life. And it will actually, as I live into that, free me from all other priorities or things that could weigh down on me. You know, uh, Tim Keller and others have made an excellent point that sometimes we think of freedom as like we have absolutely no limitations on us whatsoever. And that's just simply not true. We always choose what things we want to be free for and what things we don't want to be free for. A really great example of this is education or training. If you want the freedom financially, if you want the freedom for mobility, you give away other freedoms like money and time and season of life to be able to receive that other type of freedom. We always choose the freedom that Jesus offers in his blood is one that follows in his ways and helps prioritize our lives to where we actually are freed from the things that the world tells us that we need to do or say or possess in our lives and gives us true freedom to prioritize what's most important and what God knows we need in our lives. So the second one is give Jesus the authority. The third is this, move forward with his mission. Do the things Jesus said to do. Uh, whenever I was uh, first starting out in ministry, I remember I sat with someone uh, in this passage, and uh, one of the questions that they asked me as they were exploring faith is they were like, okay, so tell me a little bit about the hot tub moment. 
And I was like, I, I don't know what the hot tub moment is whatsoever. And as I asked her further questions, I realized she was asking me about baptism. She's like, tell me about, like, I know it's like, y'all put people up there in water. It's kind of weird. Like, and, you know, I, I explained it further um, on what baptism is. And uh, I totally get this. I think more people feel this than they confess. She confessed to me. She's like, I'm going to be honest. I kind of struggle to get in this tub of water and do this extremely abnormal thing that's kind of embarrassing in front of a lot of people that I barely even know. And on the outside, I think I totally get that instinct. And I remember just in the moment of conversation where I think just the Spirit kind of graced me, one of my answers to that was, uh, maybe think of it this way. If you're saying yes to Jesus, this is a great kickoff of what life with Jesus is going to feel like. You say yes to Jesus, you're going to get plunged into this group of people that you barely know them in some ways. You're going to do abnormal things with them. And you're going to do some things in your life that are going to be uncomfortable. Because simply, God tells you to do it. In baptism, it is our I do to God's I do to us in Christ. And when we exit the waters of baptism, we continue on this journey of doing abnormal things. The teachings of Christ that feel very different than how the world operates. It's really interesting that when Jesus describes the commission, when he describes this mission, he does not tell us to take a quiz and pass it. What he says to us is plunge yourself in water and then start doing the things that I've taught and obey them. In other words, actually do the things and you'll discover that I'm with you. Maybe a good image for this is simply thinking of faith kind of like uh, an overpass or a bridge in our lives. Um, you know, uh, someone could stand up here and talk about an overpass. They could wax eloquently about its structure. They could talk about how it's worked. They could talk about the building and the scaffolding of it. They could speak to how dependable an overpass is they could speak to all the technicalities of the footing and the pillar and the sport and how much traffic and how much weight bearing it can have. It's one thing to believe how reliable an overpass is, but it's another thing to actually drive on that overpass and trust that there's things underneath to support you. I think for some of us in the room, Doubts and questions have paralyzed us because we've simply let our faith be complacent and reluctant. Some of us need to start leaning back into the wisdom of God and the teachings of Jesus. For some of us, we need to take risk again with Jesus because we'll actually start to see when we risk, we see the one who rescues us. When we start doing the teachings he says, even when they're extremely hard, we start to rely on the one who speaks over our lives. In other words, maybe start applying the daily ways of Jesus to your life again and watch your relationship with God start 
blossom because often it's how we encounter his love and his guidance and his presence in new and refreshing ways. You know, sometimes a faith that's dormant or pampered is a faith that will slowly start to perish. But a risk of going and following Jesus in the ways that he says reveals him to us again. Matthew 28 finishes with the disciples having a memory of the history that they've had with Jesus, but the final invitation of Jesus is to say, you must move from a place dense about me to a place of encounter with me. That the disciples have known Jesus for a time, a specific time. But Matthew 28 is Jesus saying, and now you must come to know me as the ascended one who will be with you at all times. We cannot forget that the risen Lord is available to us. Like Mary, we can encounter the risen Christ in our grief. Like the two who were on Emmaus, we can encounter the risen Christ as we break the bread together. Like Saul of Tarsus, we can encounter the risen Christ even when our life is going against the ways God desires. And like Thomas or like Peter, we can encounter the risen Christ even in our doubts or our disappointment. So Lord, we pray. Can you reconstruct our mental maps can you rebuild the ways that we abide with your Holy Spirit? And can you recommit, help us recommit our lives to living out your teachings? Lord, I pray for some of us who you've placed people who don't even know you yet. Can we risk and put ourselves out there can we be people that even in our questions, can we be people who rely on you? Reveal yourself to us as we depend on you. I pray this in your name. Amen.